Welcome to River's Edge Church Podcast. Each week we strive to bring you biblically accurate, exegetical preaching of God's Word so that you might belong, believe, and become like Christ. We hope that you will find this week's message beneficial in your walk with Christ. So let's turn to God's Word today. I'm excited. Uh, If you didn't pick up on that a little bit last week, um, I get excited about the Bible stuff. Like it's just, I, I guess it's the preacher in me. I don't know. I just, I think it's cool. I like digging into the new stuff, the old stuff, all the stuff. Um, I'm especially excited about Exodus because I feel like the first five books of the Bible are one of those that we, you know, if you grew up in church, you heard, you just, you heard the stories, but you missed a lot of the meaning. And so as an adult, as I go through it and I'm studying these places, every time I open a passage, I discover something new. Every time I open the passage, I see a deeper meaning that brings more and more light to what God was doing from the very beginning of time. And so I'm so excited. I know last week we just opened up Exodus essentially and just said, hey, this is why we're studying it, and we gave the pre-context. So, you know, Bible story in a minute, we talked about Joseph being a, 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 a beloved son of, uh, of, of Jacob who got... Um, sent off into slavery, got imprisoned, and then eventually God rose him up and made him a leader in Egypt. And as a leader in Egypt, he was able to not only save his family, but also countless lives as they were dealing with a famine. And this is how Genesis ends and how Exodus begins. And so we talked about that last week, just the understanding of why reading Exodus was important, but also we talked about God's story continuing on. And we talked about the fruitfulness and the aspect of that. And so, um, you know, as we turn into this book this week, there are very large-scale things happening. And one of the things that is a continuous thread of Exodus is the story of redemption. I think we spent a large amount of time last week, but the, all of Exodus is about redemption. It's about the need of redemption. It's about what, you, you know, what you're redeemed to. It's what the, what the command is once you are redeemed. And it's how God made a way for us to be redeemed. And so that is the thread that we will be following all the way through Exodus. And the good thing is I've got eight weeks of it, which we will not get all the way through. So don't worry. Um, but we are going to explore the rest of Exodus 1 today. And so if you have your Bible and you want to turn to it, great. If not, I'm going to have my brother Mark come up here, and he's going to read 8 through 22. And we're just going to see how the story really begins. This is where the real story of Exodus really kind of cracks open. So Mark's going to come up today and read that for us. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shifra, 
and the second whose name was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, You must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Word of God. So, have you ever had a job? Maybe you were the person that job this happened to. I saw this a lot. But have you ever had a job where you got a new boss? Like someone new comes on board? And... um, Especially if they're, it seems if they're young, they, like, they feel like they have to assert themselves into a position of respect, right? We've, as a, I saw this a lot in coaching. This was a very common trait. I was this guy when I was, you know, 21, 22 years old. You feel like you have to kind of go like, I'm in charge here. And you, so you have to be like super assertive and over the top. And, um, you know, it's interesting because what this really becomes is it really shows almost an insecurity, right? Like, in reality, is we're just not comfortable with the fact that we just got put in charge, you know? And I think what we see here is interesting. We kind of see this on display in this passage. Um, if you look at verses 8 and 9, uh, it says that a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt, and he said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. This new king comes on the scene, and he's not comfortable. He's not familiar with who Jacob is. And this ever-expanding family, one of the things that is absolutely baffling to me is the size of the Jewish clan, okay, the Israelites at this point. Um, Rough numbers indicate approximately 2 million people. Um, That's a bafflingly large amount, okay? That that is hard to wrap your head around. That's bigger than a majority of any cities that we will typically visit. A lot of people happening. And we don't really pick, I mean, you couldn't just like read the Bible and go like, oh yeah, it's like totally two million people. You'd have to keep reading and looking at all the hyperlinks that keep coming back. You know, like from all I can tell is Joseph, uh, Jacob had 70 uh, descendants. That's pretty much all I know, right? Like 70 doesn't seem like that big a number. Like some of us are going to see that here in the next few days. So, um, but the reality is, no, we're talking about, this is a large group. This is a substantial amount of people. And out of fear, we see this king react. Uh, he, he's, he's uncomfortable. He doesn't know these people, and all he can see is the number of them. So he responds out of fear. And it helps us understand where this fear comes from when we have some additional information. So I always read this and thought, okay, so Pharaoh died, and there's a new Pharaoh, right? And kings work the same way in Egypt as they do in Britain. So it's a son, most likely, or at least a relative, but if you do a little research, you find this out, that no, this, this wasn't the case. See, what had happened was, this was a period of time where there was a northern invasion of the Assyrians. And these Assyrians, and their new king, conquered the Egyptian plateau where they were at. It just happened to be where Jacob's family was residing, these two million individuals. And this invasion force was called the Hycus. 
And it's very, if you go into Egyptian he, uh, um, history, it's really recognizable because some of the things, they don't do Egyptian things. They don't write in hieroglyphics. They don't build, you know, the, 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 the building style changes. And the, this group of people lived for about 300 years there. And oddly enough, like, I, I find this delightful when you can find these things verified in the Bible, right? Like, I'm all about it. Like, show me the proof. If you go to Isaiah 52.4, which I just happen to have on the screen, it'll be on the screen in a minute. I'm, I'm keeping John on his toes today. All right. For this is what the Lord God said. At first, my people went down to Egypt to reside there. Joseph. Then Assyria oppressed them without cause. Now, that's weird, but the only time that the Jewish people were in Egypt for a long period of time was around there. And we also can verify this through archaeology and all these things that, we, that have come afterwards. What we, why this is important is this. The king conquered this land as a foreigner with a sword. And that's why he was so fearful of this enormous group of foreigners. See, this is what we see as part of our fallen condition. Um, we are filled with the spirit of fear. Like, that is how we naturally come. You know? As a child, we're fearful. My son hates using that restroom in the front. He has been going here for almost a year, a year exactly next month. And he hates going in that bathroom front. Every time he has to use the bathroom, Daddy, will you come with me? And I ask him, why? Like, you know how to use the bathroom. I know, I just don't want to be by myself in there. I'm afraid. And how many of us have had a similar conversation with a child? But let's be honest with you, that is our natural go-to. We are filled with the spirit of fear until we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We can't help but live in fear. We can't help but worry when the only hope is in our own strength, in our own weapons, in our own intelligence. That's how we're going to live. We will become a fearful people. But a faithful follower of Christ has a hope far greater than their enemy, right? Or any other fear. Second Timothy talks about this, 1 through 7, or 1 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, right? But of power, of love, and sound judgment. Because in there, we're not relying on our ability. See, this king, this Assyrian king, this so called Pharaoh, this fake Pharaoh, that's what we'll go with. This faux Pharaoh was filled with fear because. He was relying solely on his strength. That was what had got him power, but that's what he was fearful of constantly losing. For a believer, our faith would be in Christ, not in ourselves. But this king, because of his belief in himself, was falling into that old trap, right? You live by the sword, you die by the sword. What I love, like you ever hear a saying, you're like, I'm almost certain that that is a biblical saying. And then, you know, we talked about this last week about cleanliness and godliness and the lie that was perpetrated to me in an early age. But oddly enough, to live by the sword is a biblical passage. It's great. It's in Matthew. I don't have it on the board because I was like, it's not that important for today. But it's in Matthew 25. You should laugh and look it up. It's great. Um, but, but here's... What it, you know, in some essence, is what it means. Those who deal in violence will fall prey to violence, right? Uh, more importantly, those who deal in violence will be consumed by violence. See, sometimes we think, oh, karma's in the air, right? Something bad happens because you did something bad. And that's not really, that's not a Christian thought. Like, we, we have to recognize that 
people who do bad things here may not face ultimate judgment until later. They will face ultimate judgment. But just because they're you know, a puppy kicker doesn't mean that at some point they're going to have a car accident. That's not how this realm of life works for a Christian believer. But being consumed by violence is something much different. This new Assyrian king who had come to power through violence by invading, conquering, pillaging, and ruling over the land, including that of the Israelites, he had become consumed not only by violence but by his own fear now. Look at verses 10 through 11. It says, when the child grew older, oh, excuse me, wrong one. It says here, come, let us deal shrewdly with them, otherwise they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python, Ramses, and a supply cities for the Pharaoh. This king observed this large group of people, this quickly growing and eventually massing to two million people, and he recognized them as a threat. There were so many people, and they were so blessed. And the king became consumed by his fears, so much so that he began dealing violence upon them. Not only did he wage violence himself, but then he also led his people to do the same. And he used the fear as an ultimate motivator. He pointed these nations, he pointed his nations towards violence. How similar is that to us? Do we not see people today doing the same thing? Do we not see people today trying to bend people to their will just by using fear? Most news outlets now become peddlers in this fear. Interesting enough, most of us grew up, and this was, like, in some sense, kind of harmless, and we look back and even funny, right? Like, which one of your products in your house is causing you to have cancer? And we were all like, ha-ha, that's hilarious. And now we're con- completely consumed by the constant threat of fear being pushed upon us. But here's the real reality. The big picture of this, of what's happening here, shows the enmity between the world and God's people. It shows the divide between the world and God's people. See, throughout Exodus and most of the Old Testament, Egypt is going to be portrayed as the world, right? And in that, it is self-reliant. It is haughty, right? It needs nothing else to survive, even the way the Egyptian society was set up, okay? If you think about it, if you've ever seen a map of Egypt, northeastern corner of Africa, it's literally on the boundaries of the Sahara, surrounded on all sides by absolute lack of rain, except for the fact that this culture was built into a river where all of its nutrients, all of its water was pushed through to the same place. So they never needed to rely on whether or not they got rain. Essentially, they never had to look upward for their... They never had to look upwards for any type of reassurance. They never had to look upwards to the heavens, if you will, for any type of sustenance, right? And it seems like an odd thing, but it's, it's part of that reality. That's how they were portrayed. And the portrayal of God's people suffering at the hands of the Egyptian rulers is really just kind of a, fir- a foreshadowing, right? The first of these is that the suffering of God's son, 
that he would endure, right? That Jesus would endure the same kind of suffering at the hands of the world, including even his own people. Ultimately, though, the opposition is that same thing that we will all have to face. All of God's people would endure this. All of God's people would have to suffer in some sort of way or fashion, right? I know, I'm concerned as well. It sounds like it's about to either explode or die. It is the air conditioning, but we're not sure what's happening to the air conditioning. So, John, it's right here. Um, It's the bottom right button. I'm assuming you can push it, but I don't think it's going to do anything. Did it move the man into the house? That's what I was told. I know. I was like, wow, that's real technical. (laughs) There's nothing else you can do to it, I don't believe. So, it's probably stuck right on like a degree kick. Or, you know, it's not, and we don't know what's happening. Will they? John's literally an HVAC guy, so I'm like, I'm over here trying to tell him how to do his job. This is great. I don't know. Thank you, John. I do appreciate it, brother. Whatever you're able to do. All right, so... Regardless, though, suffering still happens. If we look in the world today, and, you know, I also preface this with, remember, we don't live in the most oppressive of societies. Um, Surely things have gotten weirder, okay? We can all agree on that. Surely some things have gotten harder. And in certain places, I think we all agree, when we had Justin in here and he said Portland, I think we agreed that that's probably one of them. Um, There are some really hard, oppressive places. But even then, we have brothers and sisters all over the world who are really being oppressed. And they, this again, this, this Exodus piece has been for all of church history and most of, and I guess, all of Judeum, uh, Jude, uh, Judaism history. Just an example of the enmity that continues to go forth from the garden. As God was blessing slash cursing Adam and Eve, he reminded Eve that the, this, her seed would be bit by the snake on the hill, but he would eventually crush the snake. And this is the same thing that keeps showing up over and over. It's a theme that we see over and over again. And this is, again, that hyperlink, if you will, the Old Testament hyperlink back to this reminder. God's people is going, you know, they're going to feel and be oppressed because they're not of this world. Yet despite the best efforts of this this foe Pharaoh to oppress and suppress the Israelites, they continue to prosper. Verses 12 through 14 reads this way, But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied, and they spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And they worked with the Israelites ruthlessly to make their lives bitter with difficult labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all of this work on them. The Assyrian rulers and their people became merciless. They enslaved the Israelites. They worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter. Quick side note, this is something I love because we miss it because we don't really celebrate this. But when you look at the Jewish tradition of the Passover, one of the things that happens is when they make the bread, they eat the bread with bitter herbs to remind them of how they were treated in, in their slavery. Keep this in mind. 
as God brought them into the wilderness, there's a repeated pattern of hard times followed by complaining. And in those complaints is always this little tiny stab by the Israelites. Man, we would have been better off in, as slaves in Egypt. We would have been better off being dealt with ruthlessly and bitterly. See, a lot of times we forget about the hardships that we had before, right? Like, how many of us have gilded memories? You know, sometimes those gilded memories talk about how good we used to be or how great times were once. Uh, reality times were hard all the time, okay? They, they, we always had circumstances. Raising kids are great when you think back, and go, oh, my kids are great. But then there's some things you're like, eh, I forgot about that, <laughs> okay? Grandparents, right? We were like, yeah, we remember. We're reminded now. Um, and there's a reality of needing to be reminded of this. In fact, that's part of the reason why we do the Lord's Supper. Right? The Lord's Supper is supposed to remind us of not only what it costs Christ, but also it's to remind us of the life we left behind. Because we all need to be reminded of this. But in all these attempts of the Assyrian people, these attempts would fail. There was no amount of labor, no amount of oppression, no amount of ruthlessness is going to deter God's plan. Just like this previous passage, this is a highlighting of the inevitability of God. No matter what our earthly plans might be, no matter what someone else's earthly plans might be, God's will shall be done. His will will be done. And this is pointing us to a couple of things. One, the prosperity of God's people. And when I say that, I don't mean like, oh, they were rich. Remember what God told Adam and Eve, and then what he promised Abram. You're going to have more descendants than there are stars in the sky. And he told Adam and Eve, I want you to be fruitful and multiply, filling the earth. That was God's intent. But not only does it show God's inevitability, it also shows the futility of resisting God's will. And that is a big theme that we will explore, hopefully, most of this summer, is people resisting God's will and how futile that really is. God's will will be done. No amount of wisdom, rationale, or scheming will stop this. But not satisfied with the oppression and the enslavement, the pharaoh, the faux pharaoh, hatches a new plan. He's going to kill all the babies of the Israelites, or at least all the male babies. So to do this, he, he, uh, he employs the supervisors of the midwives. Now, in the Bible, it says that they are midwives themselves. Keep in mind, remember that really ridiculously big number we talked about? The, the two million Israelites? Um, so if we just go by basic numbers, that means that there's a million point two women Standard, given birth. Well, not given birth, but possibly capable of giving birth. Okay? Um, at some point in their lives. That's too much for two people, right? Like, we would all agree that two midwives ain't making it around. Um, and so there's been much thought about the reality of this was most likely the supervisors of the midwives. These are the people put in charge. And so he commands these two individuals that they should kill any of the newborn males. 
Interesting enough, though, they object. They openly defy Pharaoh. Um, super hard for us to get this. Because we're all like, oh, yeah, you just like, don't do something. Because like, if we break the law, we're probably, well, there's a good chance we might even get away with it. Right? Like, we sped, someone sped here on the way here today. I'm not raising hands. Someone broke a law today on the way here. But even then, we don't have the same recourse that we have to deal with, right? There's laws in place. Everything's got to be humane. We can get a lawyer and even fight it, probably get a reduced sentence, you know what I mean? Get that ticket knocked down to $25. But when there's a pharaoh, when there's a king involved, man, king is judge and executioner, judge, jury, and executioner right there. The king decides your fate. So you would never go against the king, especially one who was clearly ruthless. He was trying to kill babies, um, took over Egypt, so he's powerful. And yet here are these two midwives refusing. And it says why. And I think this is so important. It says because they feared God more. That should shock us. I'm, I'm like you. I grew up, like for those of us who grew up in the South, like as a kid, fearing God was like, like they were trying to make you fear God. Like they really were earnestly, they wanted you completely and utterly afraid <laughs> at all times. Like you're going to hell. Right, and that's not, I mean, again, it, overdone a little bit sometimes. It could be a little bit much. But understand, too, we also live in a world now where the world preaches God's love more and more, but we forget the importance of the fear of God. Like, we've left that out. Like, we were like, this is too much. We're going to go the other pendulum, and we're just only going to preach God's love because that's all that really matters, right? That's what makes me feel good. I love this interview that was done. So um, there was a, a preacher uh, named John Verbeer, and he went and interviewed an even more famous preacher, Jim Baker. Y'all know Jim Baker? If you don't know Jim Baker, there's lots of documentaries. Televangelists also stole a bunch of money, so not great. But John Verbeer asked him a question. He said, hey, when did you fall out of love with Jesus? Like when all this was going on, you're cheating on your wife, you're stealing money, you're bankrupting grandmamas. When did you fall out of love with Jesus? And he looks, John, he looks him in the eye and says, I never fell, I did not fall out of love with Jesus. In fact, I loved him all the way through it. I loved Jesus. I didn't fear God. I didn't fear God. See, when most of us hear the message of Jesus today, there's a good chance that you've heard about how much Jesus loves you, how you don't need to change. You can come to him just as you are. These aren't lies. You can. The good news of Christ is going to continuously be forever and ever that he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. But if you accept that, there's some bad news. There's bad news on the other end. You're a sinner and you can't stay that way. And you're going to have to die to yourself the same way Christ died. You have to give everything to him. Most people don't want to accept that. Most people don't want to live a life fearful of God. And we can forget that in all of this wonderful forgiveness and all of his gracious love, that we serve an awesome and holy God, one who sees all sin, one who's going to judge all people. And in our love for him and his overwhelming love for us, we can make the mistake that his grace is permission to live with, a sin, with sin in our life. See, God's goal 
whether we realize it or not, is to eradicate all of the sin that we have. Like, he, that's his desire. He wants us to live as Christ. Well, to live as Christ would be to live without sin. He wants to remove all of that. Unfortunately, we're super broken. So we're not going to get to the finish line in this life. And many of us can forget that this overwhelming grace that we've given, given by Christ is going to allow us just to do as we should. Paul says, oh, should we sin some more so grace be abound? No. No. We're called into living out of an awe of a God who is so holy. He can't be around sin. He can't see it. He can't cast his eyes upon it. Pharaoh's frustration ends up driving him to create this culture of fear and death. In the last verse of this chapter, it says that Pharaoh then commanded all of his people, you must throw every son born of the Hebrew into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Consumed by his fear, he now justifies and commands his people to commit murder. And it is almost impossible to look on this situation and not see some similarities in our own culture. We see division, loathing, and disdain today, just like we saw then, over things like race, political parties, and worldview. We see a culture that justifies and encourages the death of newborns, a society that embraces a spirit of fear in every aspect. And yet, I want you to consider this as, as we get you know, close to closing today. It wasn't Moses' mother, Jochebed, right? I had to look that up, by the way. It wasn't his mother who was the first to disobey Pharaoh. Like, we always assume that Moses' mom was super faithful and she floated him out there. No, the first to defy Pharaoh were the midwives, Pua and Shipreth. Here's what's wild. There's a really good chance they weren't even Israelites. That baffled me. I was like, oh, surely they're Israelites. No, it's actually, most people, most scholars think they probably weren't. Why would you put Israelites in charge of Israelites? They assigned taskmasters, right? And these names aren't Hebrew, necessarily. But more importantly, the fear that they had of God was far greater than the fear they had of Pharaoh. This is something we can take home. This is how this matters to us. There will never, ever be a law, ever, that can eradicate all sin. Can't happen. It's just not going to happen. No matter how much we want or desire to see something like that, it will never happen. Legislation is not going to be the answer to a morally depraved society. This is not an encouragement to just never get involved. What this is is an encouragement not to put your hope in the wrong place. There's never going to be a candidate that's going to be perfect. There's never going to be one man who's going to come along and fix. In fact, the Bible kind of warns us that if there is one man who says he's got all the answers, we probably should duck and run because some bad things are about to happen. More importantly, legislation will never bring about true redemption in this world. Instead, we are to live that way. The church is called to be that. Just like Pooh and Shiprath, just because the law says we have to do something doesn't mean we have to. Their, <laughs> what would have happened to them, the consequences of their actions were going to be far greater than anything we would have to face. Because it's legislated doesn't mean it has to happen that way. 
More importantly, just because it's legislated doesn't mean it would happen the way we wanted it to. We're called to love our neighbor. But we're also called to fear and love God. To pursue after him, to know his commands, and to live out a life that is honoring to him. In every church across the country, I pray, and I pray in our own church, there are different views of how we should go about with what we vote for in this country and how we should, you know, uh, look at the world in this country. But what I pray that is consistent is a desire to see God's love and redemption magnified outside of these doors, however that might be. What's beautiful about Exodus is we see that there is a God who does care about the forsaken. We see a God who does care about those who are oppressed. But we also see people who, out of fear of God, do things that God would find holy and blessed. Note what he does, if you, as we read the passage earlier. These women lied, which lying is a sin, right? We all know that. They defied the Pharaoh. But God blessed them. Why? Because they were living in a way that honored him. That doesn't justify the lying. What it does, though, is it points to something greater. The understanding of what true redemption, what truly fulfilling that command of multiplying and filling out the earth, being ruling over the world. Over and over again, this is why we will see Exodus happen over again, this redemptive nature over and over again. So I pray, even as we think about the real world around us, and it feels like it's chaos. Remember, God is moving, and he's called us to be a part of that. He's called us to be a part of this redemptive nature. So I pray that we would fear the Lord just as much as we love him, and that we would live that out in this life, bringing about redemption and bringing about a greater kingdom for him. Let's bow our heads. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We want to encourage you to like and follow so that we might reach others with God's good news. You can hear more messages like this at www.theriversedge.church. Have a blessed week.